Titans Game Cola Faithful, and welcome to the Game Cola Podcast. This is podcast number... Wait, why am I the one doing the intro? Where is everybody? Hello? Well, since it seems like there's nobody else here on this lovely day of April 1st, I guess it's up to me to talk about video games for as long as everyone can hopefully stand it. So, to drop the charade, uh, my name is James Pelster, and I am a staff member of GameCola.net and the co-administrator of its YouTube channel. And I am here today because Joseph Martin, the usual podcast commander, is rather busy right about now, and so we thought it might be funny to bring back our periodic April Fool's podcast, where a GameCola staff member, usually the podcast commander, takes over to talk solo for a while. Uh, I am not the podcast commander, but my name does start with a J, so that's close enough. I have some notes here I've written about various ideas I have to talk about, which I don't normally do for podcasts where there's other people who can keep me on track. So, in lieu of that, Feel free to grab yourself a beverage and snack of your choice where applicable and settle in for a nice long ride as I try taking the reins for a bit. And I hope that you can stand my enthusiastic ramblings. Oh, and uh, since Joe always likes to start the podcast with a rhyme about the podcast number, this is podcast number JT3, and it's just gonna be me. So... Where to begin? Uh, probably best with some Game Cola related things, uh, specifically because I run the YouTube channel. Uh, some stuff about that. If you're watching this uh, close to the release of this podcast, or heck, maybe even in the future, you might have been wondering where the heck did Danganronpa V3 and the Great Ace Attorney Let's Plays go? We have kind of all run into uh, a lot of difficulties with burnout and editing-related troubles. In particular, I edit Danganronpa V3, and John Rizzi edits for The Great Ace Attorney, and the both of us have just been uh, really going through a lot of trouble finding the motivation and time to actually edit all of these videos, especially because with series like Danganronpa and Ace Attorney, because they are sort of visual novel-style games, there's a lot of dialogue. And while we love recording them and we love uh, reading along, it also means that all of those recording sessions are very long and that in order for any individual episode to make significant progress you need it to be very long, like an hour plus long. And as a result, that's a lot of work to edit, especially on even a semi-tight time frame, like one to two weeks. And heck, even on a monthly scale, clearly John and I still couldn't keep that up, just largely because, in particular, John actually edits videos for a living, and so doing that as a hobby as well is not a lot of fun, and in my case, while I certainly love the finished product as well as what goes into it, uh, the actual process of editing is way too time-consuming for videos of this length uh, to really feel enjoyable. 
So, yeah, we have had a lot of troubles getting that out. It has been four months at least since our last video upload that was not some kind of a podcast or a special event. Uh, And it has been over a year since we've last actually recorded any sort of video at all. They've just been kind of sitting on our hard drives collecting virtual dust. So... Yeah, we're we're working on it, but it is very slow going just due to severe burnout. Uh, and in the case of Danganronpa as well, uh, just burnout, even with the games themselves, we've kind of had some time to decompress, and I was talking with John. Uh, we really haven't made much progress, and the last couple recording sessions we had, the last one in particular... I could tell, even when I when we finished recording, I could tell straight away that our energy was very low. We were definitely kind of tired and just not... The, the energy and the, the emotion was not there for that recording session. And I have been really reluctant to edit it and put it out there just for fear that it's not going to be up to the quality that we've had for previous episodes. But... There's not really a whole lot I can do to work around that because, I mean, we can't really re-record that episode, even if I could roll back to a previous save file. Our reactions to anything going on wouldn't be genuine. And so it's just kind of a a tough position that we're in. So uh, my thoughts are that just as going forward, whenever I get the time, I'm just going to try and put together these last couple episodes that we've recorded and... As for future episodes, uh, I can't speak regarding Great Ace Attorney yet because we still need to kind of uh, talk with Anna as well to figure out what the three of us collectively want to do. Uh, But John and I for Danganronpa have, we think we've decided that moving forward we are probably going to try live streaming rather than recording and then subsequently editing and uploading our sessions. Uh, In particular, it will just allow us to completely eliminate the sort of middleman task of editing from both of our plates, you know, whoever would want to take care of that. The only downside I can really see is that in some way, I guess that feels like it would be diminishing the quality and the accessibility of those videos, because, you know, while they weren't very super heavily condensed or edited, I would occasionally slip in a joke here and there, and if we're going to make this work, we would probably just want to leave the VODs as they are unedited. So it would mean no more of that, which is a little bit of a shame, but it if it means that we can at least try to be more consistent or that we're not going to view every new recording as, oh, great, another three-plus-hour-long video I need to edit uh, and put together, then that's that's really the major goal that we want to accomplish. So, I don't know. What do you all, Game Cola Faithful, think about that? Uh, if you are in our Discord server, please feel free to kind of weigh in on that if you would like. Um, or you can leave some comments in the YouTube comment section or on our actual internet website. Because uh, I-, I wouldn't mind some feedback on that sort of idea. Because we know that it's kind of been the-, the major point of content, aside from the podcast, that Game Cola's really been producing. And we've just kind of fallen off the face of the earth as far as that goes. And, you know, we, we feel bad about it. We really do. We've just kind of been really hemming and hawing because we're not sure how to proceed forward. But 
we think we have a potential solution. And obviously, while all of us are still very busy with school and work and other stuff, it would at least help cut down the amount of work and therefore make it easier for us to continue producing content for you all. So that's that's my thoughts on that. As far as after Danganronpa or Great Ace Attorney, uh, what might be coming next? That is a tough call. I'm definitely looking to maybe try and record some sort of series that would be able to have shorter episodes, hopefully, again, because if I want to actually do the editing and splitting these up and uploading these on even a remotely regular schedule, I would probably want to play some kind of a game that I can more easily break down into small, short, little, maybe even sub 30 minute episodes, maybe 20, 25 minutes, just something I can break down into sort of bite-sized digestible videos where you can make some kind of meaningful progress uh, every video just to cut down on the amount of work. So I've been thinking about maybe playing some of the original Resident Evil games because uh, I have the means to record all of those. Those are games I'm familiar with. I enjoy playing them uh, and replaying them. So that could be fun. Uh, once the Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection comes out uh, later this month, I might try and check out some of that because those are games that I've always wanted to play. I've thought that they're really cool. Uh, and they might be good for sort of bite-sized uh, content that could be done on a regular or semi-regular basis. Uh, I'll get more into discussing the games themselves uh, a little bit later when I talk about video games uh, on this video game podcast. But for now, this is the meta, the, the Game Cola-related Game Cola podcast section. So, yeah. There is also the sequel to Valhalla, which is Nirvana. Uh, that's going to be coming out eventually, we hope. Uh, I know Anna Bernarski and I had a ton of fun recording that a couple years ago, but we don't really have a definitive date for when that is going to be progressing because uh, from what I understand, the the lead developer and writer is been super, super burnt out lately and so while progress is being made it is very slow and so there is no definitive answer there but hey given how long Danganronpa and Great Ace Attorney are taking maybe by the time we actually finish those series uh it will finally be out who knows uh I think that is all of the Game Cola related stuff so Let's move on to video game related things, and I think I'm going to start out with uh, more modern or contemporary video games that I've been playing or know about, uh, and then move on to some older or classic uh, related games. Uh, I've talked about the Xenoblade games uh, at sort of length on one or two podcasts in the past, but... Uh, I am now writing a formal review, a written review, on our actual internet website for Xenoblade Chronicles 2. It may or may not be published by the time that you listen to this, but it's going to be pretty awesome, I think. It's going to be insanely long. My word count is currently something like 6,700 words, and I'm still not quite done yet. It is probably going to be, quote-unquote, my magnum opus uh, for Game Cola article writing. 
admittedly, that's not a very high bar to clear because it will also be only my second article ever written for the site. But uh, I suspect that it may not be topped for quite some time. I am really, really proud of it so far, and I hope that you all enjoy it. Uh, I was actually spurred on to do it because I had originally written just this big, long list of things I wanted to talk about in this podcast here, because since I was by myself, I could talk about spoilers and everything in more detail without worrying about spoiling any other uh, Game Cola staff members who were on the podcast with me. So I had a big giant list of topics and spoilers and such that I wanted to talk about on this podcast, but I decided that, you know what, uh, it would have made this whole recording even more absurdly long than it probably is already going to be for a one-man show. So... I figured that also being able to show off various screenshots, because the game is absolutely gorgeous, uh, and compose my thoughts better uh, rather than sort of a one-shot stream of consciousness kind of thing, uh, would have its merits. And besides that, I think GameCola.net is due for another big, uh, prominent article to show off, and I've really enjoyed making it. But boy howdy, has it been a lot of work. Uh, it has been in the works for about a solid month now. So, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. So check it out if it is published by the time that you listen to this. And if not, uh, look forward to it. So moving on from Xenoblade, another modern game I've been playing, which just came out uh, in late February, is Kerbal Space Program 2. And the sequel, as you might imagine, to Kerbal Space Program, a game which I have something like 160 to 170 hours in, if not more. Uh, it's a sort of gamified space flight simulator. You get to build rockets and planes and little uh, probes and launch them and send them to various planets, uh, establish comm networks, uh, you know, land on various celestial bodies, create space stations, and do basically anything that your uh, creative heart desires with relation to just building and flying rockets and spaceships and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it has a massive, giant modding community as well who make all sorts of crazy creations and... Uh, stuff that extend the capabilities of the base game. It's it's absolutely amazing, and I have been a huge fan of it for a number of years now, especially with my renewed interest in space and space flight and rocketry, etc., in the last couple of years. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So Kerbal Space Program 2, uh, however, released in early access on February 24th, and boy, it is really, really broken. It is very, very buggy. It is early access, like early, 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 early access. Just some basic features are not yet implemented. The game is really unstable. Uh, you know, even looking back at Kerbal Space Program 1, it's not even close to feature parity with that game, its predecessor. So, yeah, it's uh, it's got a long ways to go. Uh, but for what it's worth, uh, I know that a lot of people were really upset and kind of bothered by how buggy and everything the game was. But, yeah, 
it uh, they did at least give us uh, about a week and a half of advance notice. They actually had a bunch of the prominent uh, Kerbal Space Program YouTubers and content creators fly over to Europe to preview the game in its uh, state just before the launch. And uh, they gave them full permission to, hey, here, you can record this stuff. We have machines and rigs set up to help you record and just kind of get the word out. Hey, show people what the game is like so that they have an accurate idea of what the game is going to run like, what it's going to look like, and how it's going to play like before it opens up into early access. And this game did not offer pre-orders at all. It was only available to buy once early access opened. The game has been through development hell, especially through COVID and a lot of the um, its uh, publisher and other stuff kind of going through a tumultuous uh, couple years. But it is here now, and it's it's cool. It's buggy, but it's really cool. The main thing that bothers me personally is the the price because it is again, uh, Kerbal Space Program One costs forty dollars on Steam. And Kerbal Space Program 2 in early access, which is not even close to the the state of completeness and the amount of features that its predecessor has, is $10 more expensive. It's $50. And that price may even go up after it exits early access. So you know, once it exits early access, it will have so many more features and it'll be so much of a better game than in... what came before it but yeah that is a lot of money to be dropping on a game that is so incomplete and unfinished so i i can definitely understand why a lot of people are uh, are bummed out about that but i i have been enjoying it when i can because again lots of bugs like very game-breaking ones in some cases like the inability to save or trying to load a save file just refusing to work and putting you in a completely different location than where you picked up crafts clipping through the ground on certain spots on planets uh kerbals not being able to return to their spacecraft after exiting and uh, walking around uh the rockets being super super wobbly like you know limp noodles just wobbling around during flight And things like RCS, Reaction Control System thrusters, which help kind of control and orient your spacecraft's direction and uh, movement in space in uh, in fine-tuning, just not working very well at all. And more than that, one of the biggest problems is that the game runs very, very poorly. The performance is very bad. It requires super beefy hardware to run it and... Even then, it does not run super well depending on the situation and how complex the craft that you're building is. So, yeah, people, you know, pe- people are kind of miffed, you know, they're bummed out. I think a lot of the really dedicated fan base uh, has kind of accepted it and they, they went ahead and bought it knowing what they were getting into and just having faith that the developers would improve the game. And I also have a lot of faith based on what I've seen in just this initial build um, and the first update patch. 
it was a huge patch, something like 280 plus bugs were fixed, uh, and a lot of them being a lo- some of those super critical show-stopping bugs that I talked about earlier. Uh, huge improvements, and it also removed just some of the kind of general jank with the game, or at least the more obvious instances of it. And the game even performs uh, noticeably better. It depends on the system that you have and what kind of rockets you are building or planes, etc. But some people have reported anywhere from about a you know a fifty percent performance improvement to a two hundred to four hundred percent improvement in some situations. So uh, you know some gains small, some gains very large, but you know, any gains being very, very welcome when sometimes people had the frame rates in the single digits. So anyway, it renews my hope that the team working on this is really listening to community feedback. They've been they've been doing their best to be transparent with everything that's been going on. And I I, I have faith that in a couple months time and, you know, even in a year's time that this game could be something really, really special. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed, and for what it is, I am still enjoying the the buggy mess that we have right now. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention about that, some people I've seen have been a little bit worried about the state of people making mods with this game because the publisher is a subsidiary of Take-Two Interactive, and Take-Two Interactive, as you might know, does not always have the best reputation uh, for dealing with its modding scenes, uh, especially with uh, things like Grand Theft Auto V. I'm not super worried about that, to be honest, because the developers of the game in official press material have talked about mods being a feature or something that, that you can do, and I feel like their publisher would not have allowed them to market that as a feature if they were not going to allow it. Um, and of course, with Grand Theft Auto V mods, the big elephant in the room, that is a game that has a large multiplayer component, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto Online. But, you know, it has a massive revenue stream to protect in that case because people could be cheating, they could be hacking, or they could be, uh, you know, just messing with... Uh, other players' enjoyment, whereas with Kerbal Space Program, any mods that you have are going to be largely cooperative in nature. You can't really, uh, you know, hack or cheat too much in that kind of a game, uh, even when multiplayer is eventually implemented, which is going to be a lot later down the road in the development roadmap. Anyway, I digress. So, Moving on to the next game I have in my little notes here, and that is Forza Horizon 4 and 5. Uh, these are sort of uh, half-simulator, half-arcade-style racing games. Uh, they're made by Xbox Game Studios, and I have just been having a load of fun with these two games. I had never really enjoyed racing games prior to that point. I had played a couple racing games like Need for Speed on my PlayStation 2 back when I was a kid, never really got into that, and just never really understood, uh, you know, where, where the what the fun was in all of those games, didn't feel like they were for me, but uh, a couple months ago, one of my friends convinced me to try out Forza Horizon 5, which was on sale on Steam at the time, 
And so I checked it out, and I've been pretty hooked on it. I think I've got something like 60 hours clocked in it now, and then another 20 hours clocked in the previous game, uh, Forza Horizon 4, which I ended up buying after loving 5 so much. So... I think one of the reasons I enjoy these games is because they they don't really take themselves too seriously. They just show off a lot of passion for cars and car culture and uh as well as the region that each game takes place in. One of the the things with each of these Forza Horizon games is that they take place in a different sort of region based off of a real geographical area so for example five takes place in mexico it's not a real place in mexico but sort of a conglomeration a a fictional condensed version of mexico they still call it mexico but it's not any one particular place just sort of a a combination of the different uh, geographical kinds of landscapes that Mexico has. You know, you have a, a big tropical forest. You've got dusty dunes. You've got sort of wasteland, shrubland, sort of lava rocky areas, and even a giant uh, mountain and uh, dormant volcano caldera uh, and beaches and a bunch of other places, little small, colorfully painted town, very densely packed streets. It's all so very, very lovingly crafted, um, four takes place in the United Kingdom, and just, I, I'm not quite as familiar with that game's map, but it's got a lot of big rolling hills, long sweeping valleys, uh, again, densely packed cities, and little coastline roads, lots of dirt tracks through forested areas, and, oh my goodness, they are gorgeous, gorgeous games. I'm not super into hyper-realistic visuals, but these games look absolutely phenomenal and uh back to the subject of the sort of celebration of car culture etc one of the things that these games also tend to do that i really like is they focus on sort of car culture in that particular region that they're taking place in so for example with uh forza horizon 5 since it takes place in mexico they discuss about the volkswagen beetle a car that is very central to the culture in that area and has been sort of a staple that you see for decades and decades and decades and they have an entire little sort of small sub story related just to the volkswagen beetle and its legacy in mexico and i just think that all of these things are really really cool it's so much fun to play in addition to the races, which are broken up into four categories, that's uh, just road races, street races, which are like road races, except uh, they're sort of supposed to be done illicitly under the uh, under the radar, and so there's just other cars driving out on the road that you have to watch out for because the road hasn't been formally closed off for the race. Uh, there's also dirt races, which are kind of rally style, and then there's cross-country races, which is quite literally just going across the landscape. You're not following any sort of predetermined roads a lot of the time, just going across hills and valleys and through rivers and driving across people's, you know, farmland, um, which is quite hilarious. Uh, but there's also uh, sort of little mini events like uh, speed traps where you have to try and reach a specific target speed to earn points. Uh, there's drift zones where you try and do as many drifts 
uh, without spinning out as possible, again, to rack up points. There are uh, sort of trailblazers, which is just, hey, here's your starting point. Here's your ending point. Get there as fast as possible. We don't care what your route is. Uh, and again, you know, on the clock for points. And then things called uh, danger signs, which is just basically, hey, here's a giant ramp going off of a cliff of some kind. Uh, see how far you can fly off the end, off of the cliff before landing back down and, you know, land on your wheels instead of, you know, on your hood or roof. Um, there's a ton of different things you can do. There's also uh, car customization and upgrading, so you can kind of re-kit out your car with various upgrades, etc. You can be really granular with it. You can even tweak individual systems like your suspension, your tire pressure, your your gear ratios, your differential uh, settings, your anti-roll bars, amongst many other things if you really, really want to get down into the nitty-gritty, and all of it is, to some degree, simulated, and I find that absolutely fascinating. I don't understand uh, most of it at all, uh, but they do try to give you sort of general breakdowns of each individual system, what changing each sort of dial on the settings does, and why you might or might not want to do it. it it's still all way over my head. I'm not a huge car guy, but... It's just an amazing amount of customization. And then, of course, you can also change the uh, the paint jobs of your car. And you can even, using third-party tools, basically import like actual graphics and logos and turn them into decals to put on your car. And there's just such an amazing creative scene behind each of these different aspects. And you can uh, upload and share your own creations uh, or your own tuning setups or your own upgrade kits uh, for other people to download and try out. And it's it's all so amazing. And just there's such an amazing, loving community behind these games. And you can just really, really feel how much fun it is uh when you when you check all this stuff out anyway i've been going on about this for a very very long time but uh some last things to touch on there is the expansion passes the dlc for these games are hilarious forza horizon 4 had a giant lego dlc pack where you could drive cars made out of lego drive around in a lego world just crash into things and just have them shatter um, I think you can pick up, like, studs and other stuff along the road. I could be wrong about that, but all uh, all while discussing the, the history of LEGO, which is really, really cool. They actually give you kind of a breakdown of LEGO. And then in Forza Horizon 5, there is a giant Hot Wheels, like a life-sized Hot Wheels amusement park track, which takes place in the sky for some reason. Uh, it's really, really strange, but it's so amazing. You've got, like, giant active volcanoes you're racing through, uh, a giant tropical jungle, uh, an icy tundra with mountains and slick roads and just giant, you know, loop-de-loops with a big orange plastic track spiraling all around. And it's so much fun. If that sounds amazing, it's even more amazing than it is. 
Um, you even get special skills while driving on that track for doing things like loop-de-loops and pulling insane G-forces from, like, the sideways angled tracks and, and all sorts of other stuff. And, of course, the uh, the big sub-story there is talking about the history of Hot Wheels, uh, how they started, how the sort of scene began, and how people began customizing their cars, etc. Uh, just so, so much fun. And, of course, you can then unlock actual Hot Wheels cars, like custom Hot Wheels cars, to drive around, not only in that track, but also in the in the main game. And it's absolutely amazing. There is a new expansion coming out for Forza Horizon 5 soon, which is the Rally Adventure. And I am also super excited for that, because rally driving, the dirt racing, is by far my favorite kind of race in both of these games uh just by far and away i find that i have the best sort of driving sense and intuition for rally which is kind of weird to me because i've never raced ever i don't even drive that fast or anything so i'm not sure how that is but i just have a lot of fun kidding out you know semi-old 70s or 80s cars and equipping them for rally and then just blasting through a nice dirt and road track uh it's a lot of fun so anyway that is all i have to say about that but i'm sure i could come up with more if you just left me here for another hour and a half next up uh just a short one here fire emblem engage uh i have only played a little bit of this one i think i'm up to only chapter four or five and already i feel like i'm getting kind of overwhelmed with enemies um yeah, it's uh, it's it's classic Fire Emblem. I really enjoyed uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses when it came out a couple years ago. That was the first Fire Emblem game, and the only Fire Emblem game I've really played, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I did actually go ahead and buy a bunch of the 3DS games, like uh, Awakening, Echoes, and Birthright, Um or whatever whatever that other one was called. Fire Emblem Awakening, Echoes, and there's one other game that was like kind of a double release, kind of like how Pokemon does it. I can't remember it. But uh, I've never really been any good at them. Three Houses was really the only one I felt like I could get good at. Um, I just generally suck at strategy and tactics games, so having it kind of feel overwhelming this early on is not super great, but also, you know, maybe I should have set the difficulty to easy or something like that, because while Three Houses kind of diverged in some ways from the classic series gameplay, this one, from what I understand and what my friends who are more into the series have told me, this is much more classic Fire Emblem gameplay, traditional Fire Emblem gameplay. And uh, from what they've told me, that it feels perfect they're really really fans of the the gameplay they feel like it's as smooth and as fun and as intuitive as the series has ever felt to them uh my friend in particular loved this game and he was as he was playing it just constantly kept messaging me about how the game just felt like it was getting better with every single battle and how he could not believe it so uh, I, I hope to get back to it at some point. Uh, don't know when that will be, but I, I trust his opinion on that. And while it may not necessarily be a game for me, I would definitely encourage you all, if you are interested in that, to uh, to check it out. 
And that friend, by the way, is now going on and replaying a bunch of the original classic retro Fire Emblem games in order, uh, which has apparently uh, been a, a heck of a thing because some of those games, rather than having a ton of short and sweet battles, uh, some of the games apparently just have like a dozen incredibly long like 40 to 50 plus turn battles and it's just a massive slog so uh yeah beware if you ever get the inkling to to try and do that i uh, i don't know if i can personally recommend it so that's all for fire emblem uh, another game that I have been playing somewhat recently is uh, Subnautica and Subnautica Below Zero. Uh, again, I don't have a ton to say about these, but the major things are just amazingly immersive. Gorgeous, gorgeous visuals, fantastic soundtrack, very, very atmospheric. Just super, super unnerving and scary, especially at nights or if you're delving particularly deep. Uh, this is the kind of game I feel like could certainly bring out phobias in you that you did not know you had until now. In sort of a good way, I guess, in the sense that, oh man, it feels really realistic. It feels, well, I guess not realistic, that's not the right word, but uh, it feels very real. It feels like you're very immersed in that world, and so just... Being at the top of the water, uh, looking down below you and not being able to see the bottom, uh, and then even swimming down and down and down, and the water is all just getting darker and darker around you, and you still can't see anything, and you hear all these strange noises around you, and you have no idea where you are, and you've got to make sure that you have enough oxygen left, and it's, oh my god, it's an amazing experience, a fun crafting system, uh... The original game, uh, because actually there's been some confusion about this in the Game Cola Discord, Uh, Subnautica and Subnautica Below Zero are two completely different games. Below Zero is not an expansion pack or DLC for Subnautica. It is its own separate game. I think it's a sequel. I haven't played as much of it, but I've gotten a reasonable ways in, and I think it's sort of a sequel or something like that. Maybe a prequel. Heck, I'm not sure. So the original game, Subnautica, just recently got a huge update patch, which has been in the works for almost a year, I think, which has been the developers working to backport a lot of the uh, improvements to the game engine that they've been working on and that they implemented for Below Zero, uh, such as being able to have a number of pinned recipes that you can keep up in the corner of your screen to more easily keep track of, hey, here's a a recipe that I want to look out for the ingredients for, or that, uh, hey, remember to to work on this particular item, uh, etc., and, oh man, I wish that that update had come out a l- couple months earlier than it did because I already finished uh, Subnautica 1 uh, prior to it coming out, and I kind of wish I had had all of these nice quality of life and performance improvements when I was doing so. But uh, the game was still very, very much enjoyable uh, either way. So, again, very, very good games. So... Now on to some of the older stuff, or the new old stuff, such as, uh, like I alluded to earlier, the Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection. It is coming out 
later this month, and I am very excited. I have never really played any of the these games in any detail, but I've tried uh, checking them out here and there. I've definitely watched some people play them uh, the first couple games all the way through, and they really seem like a lot of fun. And another reason that I find these games interesting is because it feels like on the surface, their their stories, their plot lines are rather shallow, but meanwhile, their gameplay is complex and takes a very long time to sort of master uh, how that all works. The the movement, the the timing of your attacks and dodging enemies' attacks, especially since each enemy has, uh, or most enemies, have their own unique attack patterns. Um, sort of what combos you can build up with your various battle chips and how to deck out your folder to uh, sort of set you up to have the, the right abilities for any uh, specific area, especially things like some of the more advanced uh, post-game areas that a couple of these games have. Um, and in that sense... It almost kind of feels like a Pokemon game to me in that the stories, for the most part, are not super deep. They're not super uh, emotional or serious. Uh, They feel a bit kind of like a Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, Does does anyone still watch Saturday morning cartoons? Are are cartoons only on Saturday morning anymore? I don't know. Uh, But the gameplay is really, really deep and has a very high skill ceiling. And, of course, uh, since both Pokemon and Mega Man Battle Network have a multiplayer function, uh, I can imagine there is definitely the potential for a competitive scene and, of course, some kind of a meta that might go with it. And... Part of me wonders if that's why these games still seem to be mostly well-regarded and how they can endure despite perhaps shortcomings in, you know, maybe their localization or their their plots or stuff like that. Maybe the gameplay is just enjoyable enough once you get used to it that it's a game that you can keep coming back to. I don't know. Uh, Of course, each game uh, definitely seems to make lots of tweaks and improvements and add quality of life as you go on for the most part. So I'll definitely be interested in seeing uh, how that goes, starting from one and moving forward as I actually play it myself for the first time. And I have to wonder, does Mega Man Battle Network count as a card game? You know, a la... Kingdom Hearts, Chain of Memories, because your battle chips, you have a folder of battle chips, which you could liken to a deck of cards in a card-based playing game. So it kind of makes me wonder. I'd never really thought about that, but I think it might kind of count like one of those, in which case, yeah, that'll be interesting to uh, to get used to, because I also am generally, historically, not been a huge fan of uh, card games. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe maybe this has what it takes to, uh, to hook me. Who knows? Uh, another game that I'm really looking forward to is Metroid Prime Remastered. Uh, I just got my copy delivered uh, almost a month late after the physical copies uh, were first supposed to be available. Uh, but it's here. I have it, and I've been playing uh, a little bit of it. I think I've got a couple hours into it now. 
Uh, I think I just got Morph Ball Bombs, uh, maybe something a little... Uh, no, I just got the Varia suit, I think. Uh, it's taken me a long time. I'm still not totally used to the controls. Uh, I played... I own the Metroid Prime Trilogy for Wii, uh, and I played that a little bit the first game, but, man, I had not played Wii in a long time, and my arms got very, very tired very, very quickly uh, trying to play those games. So I, again, did not make it very far. I think I probably got up to around that point, maybe a little bit farther, um, but it's been a number of years since then. And so for the most part, this game definitely feels like a fresh, largely new experience to me. But uh, yeah, getting used to the world, getting familiar with it, and then the controls is the biggest hurdle by far and away. It was with the original on, uh, or well, the, the Wii version wasn't the original, but it was the same way with the Wii version and same with the Switch version. They have a bunch of different control options. All of them are weird. Um, we've sort of got a twin stick style. That's the default, which is a new control scheme where you move around with the, the left stick and you look around with the right stick. Um, that seems like it could be relatively intuitive to any sort of people who are used to modern shooters, but the game was definitely not originally designed around that control layout, and so some of the button mappings, from what I understand, are kind of weird when you get to, to doing the more advanced techniques. Um, then, of course, you have your uh, pointer-style aiming, which is like the Wii controls. Uh, however, because the Switch does not use uh, infrared and a motion bar like the, or in a sensor bar, rather, like the Wii did, the accuracy is not as good as it was on the Wii, uh, because the, the Switch Joy-Cons just use, uh, gyroscopes to determine your, uh, position and etc. Then, of course, we have the, the classic game mode, which mimics the GameCube, the original GameCube, uh, control layout, uh, and then there is Hybrid, which is the GameCube control layout, but you can use gyro controls to aim precisely when you have your aim button, so your sort of targeting button held down. That's what I've been playing with primarily, and it feels okay, but I feel like this is a game where you might need to play through the entire game once before you actually feel like you have a constant intuitive sense of the controls they they're just hard to describe it's hard to describe how weird they feel not necessarily in a bad way but just in a sense that there is a lot going on and you have to do a lot and so you're kind of juggling a lot of common buttons and you have to switch back and forth between moving and aiming and locking on and sometimes you need to move your view before you can lock on to an enemy to figure out to get it sort of on screen before you can lock onto it and uh it's it's weird so but i am uh i i don't know i've been loving it so far the the graphics look gorgeous the sound design's amazing uh it plays really really smooth and the music is, of course, amazing, and I am a sucker for good music, as always. Speaking of good music, Ghost Trick is finally getting a proper HD port. Uh, I first played that game on my iPad back in high school, and that port 
basically got left in the dust alongside the original version of the Ace Attorney 1 through 3 uh, HD trilogy long, long before we got the 3DS versions or the new iOS and Steam and Switch versions. Yeah, they were a little bit jank, definitely had some weird issues to them. Uh, but yeah, while Ace Attorney HD Trilogy did get kind of updated and revamped uh, later on from its sort of jank beginnings, uh, Ghost Trick did not. It just kind of languished and died, and I'm glad that I did get to experience it in some form, uh, especially with uh, native touch controls in some capacity. And it was such a fun game. I really, really want to go back and play it. And that's another game I'm considering uh, playing for the Game Cola YouTube channel at some point in the future. Uh, amazing music, uh, really great writing, hilarious and fun and engaging characters uh, made by the creator of the original Ace Attorney trilogy as well, Shu Takumi. This port specifically is getting a complete overhaul sort of remastering of the original soundtrack by the composer of the great Ace Attorney, and that's super cool. Uh, my only complaint is that it is only available in digital form outside of Japan, which is a bummer, but I did go ahead and grab a a, 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 a physical collector's edition uh, imported from Japan, uh, pre-ordered, uh, because it comes with a soundtrack CD, and I need those desperately, because this game's soundtrack is amazing, and I listen to it uh, very often, because it's it's really good, and I can't wait to have CD-quality audio of the, the remastered, the full remastered soundtrack. Very uh, excited for that. But, of course, if you don't need those or you're fine if, with just listening to the game because you're not a crazy nerd like I am, uh, honestly, digital is probably the way to go. I think it's going to be on Nintendo Switch and PC. I would hope it's on other consoles, but I'm not positive about that at this time. So, another uh, classic game series that I've been playing lately is the uh, Shin Megami Tensei and... Uh, just some of the earlier, even earlier, Megami Tensei games on uh, NES and Super Nintendo. Man, the series has really come a long way. It is very different from these early games. In particular, any game from Shin Megami Tensei 3 onward has a very different gameplay formula to these previous games. Uh, these games are all sort of first-person view grid-based dungeon crawlers, and I find that really interesting. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the Etrian Odyssey style of games or the uh, the Persona Q games, uh, that's a lot of what they are like. Um, it's really interesting because a lot of the mechanics are still the same. You've still got the sort of core basics with recruiting demons by talking to them to invite them to join your party uh, and fusing them with other demons to create new, stronger, better demons uh, to not die in later areas and just uh, progressing your way through various different dungeons uh, for the end goal of, uh, you know, stopping some big bad evil or and, uh, and saving the world in some uh, capacity. So, I don't know, just a lot of fun. Uh, not super narrative or story-driven, 
uh, especially not the first game, Megami, the first games, Megami Tensei 1 and 2, uh, very, very light on the story, barely any NPCs, really, really heavily focused on the gameplay, definitely a bit grindy, uh, especially just because you, if you want to get strong demons, you really need to kind of go around trying uh, and failing repeatedly to recruit new demons to your party because that is an entirely RNG-based process, and it's it's weird. Uh, the whole... I, I could go on for a while about how I feel like there's some mechanics of the Shin Megami Tensei series that is just kind of bad game design in some sense, but that we've just kind of accepted it as a signature part of the series' identity, and... Eh, I guess it's fine. Um, in particular, uh, some of the early Megami Tensei games have enemies that can just permanently lower your level. Like, just, oh, hey, they hit you with this particular attack, and it just drops your level by one. And they can sort of, to some extent, spam this ability, so you can find yourself losing two or three levels against these enemies when they show up if you're really, really unlucky. It's not an attack they use super common, but again, because it's all RNG-based, uh, you can kind of get screwed over, and then you just have to go and grind some more. And to me, that kind of feels like... These games in general feel like they're very heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons, but some of the mechanics that they adopt work a lot better when there is a human dungeon master controlling the action and who has the logic and foresight to kind of plan out events in the long term and change things up based on how things are currently going more dynamically rather than just a basic enemy AI whose end goal is just defeat you is as semi-efficiently as possible um so, yeah, I, they're really fun games, uh, especially if you like kind of first-person dungeon crawlers, but they definitely feel kind of antiquated these days. And one other thing that I've been doing that has actually made my experience uh, oddly more enjoyable than you might expect is doing all of my own mapping for the most part. I have been using a, a piece of software. It's available uh, on Steam uh, costs like 15 bucks or something, I think, maybe 25. It's called a Grid Cartographer, and it's basically like a Dungeons & Dragons plus video game mapping tool. You can sort of draw all the layouts and the walls and the doors and where the NPCs are, add little notes for, hey, here's a treasure chest, here's what's in it, uh, add little terrain markers to say, hey, this is poison, or this is a pitfall, or this spins you around to a random direction, etc. Here's a save point. Uh, and that's been really, really useful because in these early Super Nintendo games, the maps really don't give you much information in-game. They do have automatic mapping in-game, but they only give you the general layout of the floors and where the entrances exits, um, very specific uh, buildings are, like shops, but they don't tell you what kind of shop it is. It just says, hey, here's a shop. Hey, here's a place where you can heal. Maybe. We don't always mark those. Or, hey, here's a place you can save. Here's a place you can fuse your demons. 
and it's much more convenient for me to have more detailed maps up uh, alongside as I'm playing that I can reference to uh, to kind of keep better track of where I am and get a better, uh, even intuitive sense of where everything is as I'm navigating these dungeons. And it it feels oddly satisfying in its own way. I, I never grew up doing this in games that I played, but it's it just feels satisfying in addition to just the general actual you know objective advantages of having a more detailed map it kind of made me feel nostalgic for a thing that I have no nostalgia for if that makes sense so again it's weird it's odd I haven't actually beaten any of these games even though I've started and uh, tried a bunch of them but I, I hope to I've been getting through them very gradually uh, of course, I've also been replaying a lot of the classic Resident Evil games on PlayStation. Those are a lot of fun. I still have the best sense for the first game, uh, but I've been trying to get through Resident Evil 2 uh, as well because I've never managed to beat that game, and I'd really like to try a sort of B-route, the secondary playthrough, on a completed save file, which changes some things up, alters how the puzzles work, etc., and I've always wanted to see how that works, but I've never been able to before, so I've been kind of uh, streaming it to a couple of my friends and uh, just kind of working through the game in bits and pieces. And uh, they, they, they still hold up really well, although there's a couple little weird jank bits. Like Resident Evil 2 in particular likes throwing occasional rooms at you where there are just way, way too many enemies like, you, you, you step into a room and there's five or six enemies just right there, and you need to have maybe not split-second reflexes, but you need to react within three or four seconds or you are going to be taking massive damage and potentially just getting stun-locked into dying and losing progress. And I don't like it very much. You kind of have to not go into certain areas until you get the shotgun, in which gives you some sort of area of effect damage. And even then, it can still be uh, pretty overwhelming. So, anyway, lots of fun there. Speaking of other PS1 games I've been having a lot of fun with, Spyro! I recently uh, grabbed the the first three games on PS1, just uh, discs off of eBay, and I've been going back and replaying those. I 120%ed Spyro 1 for the first time, and uh, that's because... You, you get uh, 100% by beating all of the main levels, except there's one final level that only unlocks when you reach 100%. And then in that level, there's just basically a big giant bonus stage. There's not really any enemies. It's just the giant big level you can fly around in mostly freely and just collect a ton of gems, a ton of treasure. And that jumps your percentage all the way up from 100% to 120%. Uh, I did that for the very first time because when I was a kid, when we had the game originally, I I think I completed every level except for the flight stages because those were way too hard for me and they're still kind of a difficulty spike even now. So uh, I, I definitely had to look up a few guides for, hey, where do I, which way do I fly? You know, wh how do I complete these objectives? Uh, but once I did, I was able to get the hang of it. And uh, with, you know, 
mild difficulty I was able to get through it, and it was such a fun experience. And now I'm finally able to experience uh, Spyro 2 and 3, games which I've never actually played before. Uh, I do also own the the Reignited trilogy on uh, PS4 and on Steam, uh, but I always kind of wanted to play the PS1 originals before I got too far into the HD remakes, and honestly, these games still hold up super well. Spyro 2 uh, has a lot more voice acting than I expected, and it has a lot of little cutscenes when you enter each area and when you leave each area. It's uh, really surprised me. Uh, enemies, when you kill them, they don't drop gems anymore. They drop these sort of soul fragments, which uh, when you collect enough of those, it powers up sort of a secondary objective. And um, it's a little bit more exploratory, whereas in Spyro 1, you could complete every single level the first time you visited it. Uh, depending on what order you visit levels in, in Spyro 2, you may not be able to complete all of the objectives uh, the first time around. You may need to unlock an ability later on and then come back to the level later to access an area you couldn't before or to uh, to beat some kind of mini game that you uh, had trouble with. Uh, it's really interesting. So many little secondary objectives and uh, after beating a level completely and coming back, there sometimes are even tertiary objectives uh, for things called uh, skill points, which I don't actually know what those do yet or if they contribute towards your completion percentage or not. Uh, but that's really cool. Just kind of even more collectathon-y than Spyro 1. Uh, and of course, Spyro 3, I remember... I got to play it a little bit at a friend's house when I was really young, but uh, barely any memories of that game at all. So uh, I'm looking forward to checking that out once I uh, hopefully complete uh, Spyro 2 all the way. So very, very, very fun. And I have been going back and checking out uh, some of the Secret of games, that is uh, Secret of Mana and The Secret of Evermore, which is uh, another game by Square Enix, basically using the uh, the same game engine, but developed by a completely different team with a completely different premise. Uh, man, Secret of Mana is not as fun of a game as I originally thought. A lot of the bosses are very spam-happy with magic attacks that you just straight-up can't avoid, and sort of the only way to combat that is to spam magic of your own. And there's not a ton of grinding, but if you want to survive a little longer and be able to cast more magic, uh, it's definitely in your best interest to grind a bit. Um, the combat is also a little bit rough. Um, the hit detection is not super great. And sometimes, even when the hit detection works, you miss why 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 is missing attacks even a thing in a game where you can actually physically miss an enemy by not being lined up correctly with your sword swipe like they're they're already moving around they're already flying around in weird patterns and jumping around and rolling around and and just moving and being hard to hit in a physical capacity so why would you make it so that even when you actually manage to land a hit it can just miss Ugh. but it's uh graphics are fun uh 
characters are charming, and the music is great. Uh, interestingly, Secret of Evermore has very little soundtrack to speak of at all. It's mostly ambient noise and sort of sound effects, and that's really interesting because it's very immersive, and, you know, there's all these different uh, various time periods. You're, you're kind of traveling through a sort of fantasy world that's made up of a bunch of different time periods, but it's weird because each time period is its own geographic area, and I think they might kind of sort of know about each other's existence because you can convert between the different eras' currencies in each era, so... I'm not really sure how that works, but it's weird. It's kind of quirky. It's got a lot of the same issues with combat. It's uh, it's only a two-player game this time rather than Secret of Mana, which is three. And actually, I haven't verified that it's actually two-player, but I know that by pressing select, you can switch between the, the, the boy and his dog. Uh, and I named my characters in that game uh, Joel and Mike, respectively, for the do- for the boy and the dog. Um, because the the game makes a lot of like cheesy movie references, the boy in particular, and so although I'm not super familiar with the series, uh, it makes me think of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. So I feel like the uh, the reference is appropriate. Uh, but yeah, very very fun games as well. More fun games, continuing the trend. Can can, can you tell that I like talking about games that I enjoy, uh, at least in some capacity? Yeah, uh, that's that's why I'm here. I hope you're uh, you're still with me. Um, anyway, uh, Dragon Quest VIII. I have been replaying that game as well with uh, with my family. Uh, that is, we uh, I, I sit down and kind of play the game, and some of my family members all sit uh, around with me on the the couch in our big family room, and they read off of our big Brady Games guidebook that we bought years and years ago, and it's just such a blast. And it's more incredible to me that a 100-plus-hour JRPG uh, of this age is still one that we, are, as our whole family, comes back to time and time again. It's not just me that replays this game every now and and every couple of years. It's it's a couple of us, uh, including my sisters. And it just shows how fun and charming that game is. We've just had so much fun going through that and, and having it be sort of a family, a collaborative family activity where one of us plays and the other people read the guidebook, tells you, oh, hey, if you're going through this area, be sure to check for this chest and this chest and this chest hidden off in, in these different areas. Or, oh, hey, you can craft a uh, a new piece of armor now or you can go buy this uh, this ingredient that you need for this one set of alchemy here. It's it's still just an enduring pastime that we uh, we really enjoy. I've tried playing the 3DS remake that came out a number of years ago. I want to say 2018. Uh, it is a technical marvel that has a lot of neat quality of life features, but I can't really get into it because it just doesn't look good or sound good. Um, the... The music is all MIDI in the 3DS version, which I kind of understand why they did that. Um, The original Japanese version of Dragon Quest VIII was sort of a MIDI synthesized soundtrack. 
Um, and on 3DS, I can understand why they do that, maybe to, to save space or something like that on the cartridge. I don't know for sure. Um, but the American version of that game on PS2 had a fully orchestrated soundtrack recorded by the Tokyo Symphonic Orchestra. And it's so much better, and it sucks that this port can't have that. And the visuals are just a little bit degraded, in my opinion. Uh, the PS2 version had a really fancy dynamic lighting system, which the 3DS version, as far as I can tell, can't do, probably for performance reasons. Um, it also runs at half the resolution, because, of course, the 3DS's screen size is much smaller. And the menus are all black and white, and they're entirely text-based, even though, again, the U.S. PS2 version had a dedicated uh, graphical menu for things like the inventory, which was really, really cool and felt much nicer to navigate. Uh, my guess is, again, most likely this port was based purely off of the original Japanese version. Uh, I found out that the original Japanese version of the PS2 game actually had the sort of... Uh, classic style menus from like the NES and SNES era where you would press uh, sort of a one menu button and it would bring up a list of options like talk, check, status, items, more, etc. And it really does feel like an early, early Dragon Quest game dating back to like the NES or something like that. And, you know, I always knew Dragon Quest was based off of you know, tradition, and that they really kind of uh, felt pride in that tradition, but at some point, I feel like you're kind of losing, you're going kind of against quality of life and convenience in some respects, and I don't know, I'm glad that the the American versions of a lot of these games uh, streamlined them in that capacity. All right, and I think one of the last topics I wanted to talk about today was uh, I, another game I've been playing. Can you imagine? Uh, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link on my grandmother's old NES. I've gotten that hooked up and been playing that. It is surprisingly fun, but it is also very frustrating and very hard. It is a Nintendo hard game, as uh, I think the 80s kids would say. However, I do have a flash cart for that system, and I've found that there's a really nice ROM hack. I believe it's called Zelda 2 Redux uh, that overhauls a lot of different aspects of the game mechanics, such as the experience system, and uh, in particular, enemies that you could previously kind of farm for experience pretty easily, like the sort of uh, skull-faced little bubble kind of enemies. Uh, now give you less experience to account for the fact that they're also been made easier to kill, but enemies that would previously just respawn endlessly and not give you experience, or even worse, if they hit you, might drain experience, uh, now do drop experience and don't drain it anymore, because that's really frustrating. Uh, and some of the text has been kind of uh, retranslated. The text boxes have been made larger so that the translation can be more accurate uh, to kind of help you give you a better idea of where to go, etc. And uh, something else that I've been discussing with people regarding ROM hacks is whether whether playing with a ROM hack harms the sort of creative integrity of games. If you're, you know, you, you shouldn't be playing with these ROM hacks if you want to get the original experience, because that's not how it was intended to be played. And I get that, and, you know, from a purist sense, 
I think that that's probably true. But in some cases, either we just didn't have the kind of game design sensibilities that we do today, or even in some extreme cases, games were deliberately designed to be frustrating to, for example, combat the the market of video game rentals. So that if you wanted to get your game beaten, uh, you didn't want it to be so easy that you could actually beat it on a single rental. No, you had to go back and return it and re-rent it again three or four times before you could uh, get good enough because the game would just kick your butt so much over and over and you had to, to really invest a ton of time into uh, getting it. But, uh, you know, and I don't really have a problem with playing or, you know, using ROM hacks to uh, to try and circumvent you know, frustrating game mechanics or to, to just make a game feel more modern or more enjoyable to play in the modern day, especially since I have, you know, very limited time. And I might appreciate a game on a lot of its merits knowing that it didn't originally play that way originally. Uh, I guess what I mean to say is I might still be able to enjoy a game even though I know I'm not playing exactly what was released 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I don't know. It's it's up to you. It's your own personal preference. But I think a lot of these ROM hacks that the community makes are uh, super-duper impressive, especially just because of the amount of work and engineering that goes into actually being able to figure out, hey, here's what the game is doing under the hood. Here's how we can alter it and move stuff around and rearrange it to make it work this other slightly different way, or in some cases, completely different way. And especially with older games, that is a Herculean effort, and I have uh, a lot of respect for it. And, uh, yeah, I think we might finally be done here. Uh, I think that's everything in my notes that I wanted to talk about, and I'm sure that as soon as this podcast is edited and goes live, I'll think of uh, a bajillion other things the, that I wish I could have talked about or, oh, I wish I'd thought about that. Uh, but for now, I think this is pretty good, and I imagine that you are probably heard just about enough of my voice as you would want to hear for the rest of your life. So (laughs) thank you for being here with me. Uh, I hope that this all uh, turned out okay and that you all uh, enjoyed it to some degree. If you uh, want to check us out, we have an actual internet website, which is GameCola.net. We've got our YouTube channel, which is either at GameCola or GC.net. That's the letter G, the letter C, the word dot, and the word net. And we are on, I believe, Twitter and Facebook as GameCola. And finally, we have our Discord, which is open to all. You're welcome to come in and chat with us. And by all means, if you would like me to expand upon any points that I've touched on here, I am sure I would uh, be more than happy to do so. But hey, until next time, this has been the James Cola Podcast, and we'll see you next month for a more regularly scheduled program. See you later, everybody. Well, as it turns out, 
talking to myself for a little over an hour? Harder than I thought. Can everyone please come back now? <laughs>